Oh, thanks, Claire. Thank you. Um, hey, everybody. It's really good to see you. No time like the present for home groups, hey, Rosie? Um, they're an absolute joy. Claire, thanks for doing that. Our operations team service so well, don't they? Let's come on. Let's give it up. I don't know if Claire managed to blush in that moment or not, but um, that was the aim. And honour, of course. Um, well, as, um, as Ben said, um, a really warm welcome um, to all of you. And uh, if I've not met you before, my name is JP. I'm part of the um, staff team here. Um, hey, online as well. Great to have you guys with us. And um, we're just into week two of a, a series in, in the Gospel of Matthew, an eyewitness account of, of Jesus' life, uh, written by one of his followers. And, and really out of this heart of, we just want to be with Jesus. We want to gaze upon him. We want to um, be like him. We want to see uh, what he's like, how he interacted uh, with people and, uh, and the, the finality of his victory dawning in our lives. And so just wanted to, to spend... Um, a good bit of time um, in the gospel. And to, to help us access that, um, this Tuesday, uh, eight o'clock on Zoom, um, the legend that is Josh Donagani, who's um, part of the preaching team here, um, he's going to be running uh, an introduction to Matthew um, so that we don't have to uh, cover that too much in, uh, in the preaching. He's going to do a, a, an overview of the book and just we'll, we'll see how some of the um, the, the themes are very kind of deliberately uh, woven together. Uh, there'll be some take-home strategies to just really help us to, to engage with seeing Jesus in the gospel uh, to get the most out of it. And if you're lucky, then maybe his cute baby daughter might make an appearance too. So uh, we'll have to see. But details on the website for that. Um, so that's, that's um, this Tuesday. Now, this week, there are a number of children um, across uh, Grace Church who started school for the first time. If, uh, if you've had one of those, do you want to put your hand up in the room? I guess some online as well. There's others, uh, some at the four o'clock service. And so they will have had their first ever experience of a school dinner. Okay, now school dinners, I don't know what your experiences of them are like. I don't know if they've changed since my day. I would be intrigued to know if you are either in an educational institution or work in an educational institution. Could you just raise your hand just to see how many we've, we've got in the room? Uh, just nice and high, just so we can see. And if you are very happy to eat the foods that your canteen serves, could you keep your hands nice and high? Some hands definitely went down very, very quickly. Sonia is standing firm. We've got Mark down here as well. Seems like this, these guys are the, the best uh, school dinners in, in Nottinghamshire. Um, but I have two memories about my own school dinners. The first is that my school dinners got me on TV, right? Because we had, bear in mind this is the early 1990s, the news item, slow, slow news day in West Midlands. We had the only dinner man in North Staffordshire. Now, you can tell it was the early 1990s by how we kind of consider those things today. But what was really embarrassing for me was like the headline picture was me and this other girl, which I had a massive, who I had a massive crush on at the time. There, there we were kind of on uh, West Midlands today. And um, it got worse years later uh, when at high school, I realized she was actually the daughter of my French teacher. He was like, oh, Jonathan, I saw you on a, uh, I knew it was going to be bad when she was going to be Jonathan. I, I saw you on a, a news item last night next to my daughter, and I just went totally red, kind of blushed all over. It was really embarrassing. Anyway, they got me on t TV, but the second thing was that I remember at my school dinners was that there was something that I felt as a Christian I just couldn't engage with, and it was when they put this dessert on the menu called devil's cake. 
Now, I was like six at the time, and all I knew was like, God was good, devil was bad. And so like devil's cake, I didn't know what was gonna happen to me if I ate, ate this cake. <laughs> but all I can think was that it was chocolatey, it was so rich, it looked so good, it looked so tempting, but in the name of Jesus, I can't have that possibly. <laughs> and so I, I never went for it. And um, we can joke around with, with temptation, um, can't we? But um, actually, when we succumb to temptation, uh, there's some much more serious consequences, aren't there? Um, the drink that covers the pain, the latest bet in the pattern of addiction, the secret affair, the hiding of other sinful habits because we're not sure how to stop them, the decision not to avert our eyes, the temptation to see our identity in what we do or what we have or what other people think of us. Succumbing to temptation can have some serious consequences. But fortunately, we have a Jesus who has overcome temptation and now empowers us to face it as his people. And so that's what we're going to be having a look at uh, today. Uh, we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 4, and I have asked the lovely Evelyn to come and read the passage for us. So just as, uh, as Evelyn comes up, um, it's just worth noting that Matthew's talking about Jesus' preparation for his ministry here. And so what he's doing is, um, is showing this as the, what Evelyn's about to read, is the last step. You okay, there we go. The last step in Jesus' preparation before he starts his ministry. So I'll get out of the way. This is Matthew chapter 4. If you have a Bible, then do head there. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your face against the your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's just pray together. Father, we thank you for the, the truth of your word, for its life-giving nature, uh, for the way that we don't so much read it as it reads us. And I pray today that um, we might see Jesus, 
the ultimate point, the ultimate destination of your wonderful revelation. I pray today that there would be uh, no room for the condemnation of the enemy, uh, but we would know truly the freedom and power that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, the observant amongst you might have noticed that we've made a massive jump already. Uh, Last week, we were in chapter one. We're in Matthew chapter four um, already. And so um, the the story so far, because we'll we'll come back to some of the intervening bits um, as we head towards Christmas, Advent, etc., is at the start of Matthew 1, as we saw last week, we have Matthew's genealogy of uh, his uh, history and heroes and uh, biblical hope. And we see how Jesus fulfills all those things and redeems the human story. And then the second half of, of chapter 1, we see Jesus uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in all vulnerability, that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And we see then the wise men, start chapter 2, come to uh, see Jesus, uh, likely from Babylon um, over in the east. And um, they're, they're, they're coming to Jerusalem, and that really would have kind of uh, pricked the attention of, of um, uh, early readers of the gospel who would have known that the last time with any significance in history, people came from the east, from the Babylon area to Jerusalem, it was when they carried the people of God off into exile. And yet now here these wise men are making the same journey to come and worship the king of Israel. Jesus is redeeming the story, if you like. And Matthew's point here is that the exile, the captivity that they went into, that many Jews of the day still felt that they were in for for still being kind of under the consequences of their sin, ruled by a pagan power, is now truly over in the coming of Jesus through a new exodus, a new coming out of the situation that Jesus is going to accomplish. And so Jesus, like Israel, ends up in Egypt. And like Israel, the the male Israelite children end up being killed by a powerful ruler. And as Jesus grows up, he he goes out into the wilderness, that's what Israel did, through water. Israel went through the Red Sea. Jesus is, is baptized by John the Baptist, where he's affirmed as the son of God. Now that was an Old Testament description of Israel as well. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew quotes the Old Testament saying in, in chapter two. And so just, just, just like Israel, Jesus identifies with us in our weakness through his baptism and then through the temptation that he faces in the wilderness. And that's where we are today. He's, he's taking the whole biblical story, Israel's story to himself, and he's redeeming it. And uh, the theologians have a big word for this. They call it recapitulation. Uh, But really what it's meaning is that Jesus adopts us into his better story. He changes the outcome of our lives and he allows us to face the trials of life with a whole new perspective. This is the Jesus that we serve who adopts us into his greater story, lifts us out of our uh, circumstances and changes the outcome of our lives, allowing us to face them once again through his perspective. This is why Jesus changes lives. This is why Jesus shapes destinies. This is why Jesus takes us from darkness to light. And so Jesus finds himself in a a hot, dry desert, um, away from people, And Matthew's point here is that it's the Holy Spirit who leads him here. God wants to do or to reveal something in him, i.e. there is purpose in his time in the wilderness. And some of us need to hear that this morning. There there was purpose in Jesus' time in the wilderness, in his time of trial. And so Jesus seeks God through uh, through fasting, and after 40 days, the um, 
the, the Bible says Jesus was hungry. Now, that might seem kind of obvious, but it, it's meaning like a, a deep kind of hunger that, that comes after a prolonged period of fasting and funny things the body starts to do. And, and he meets the only thing that is worse than a prophecy about food when you've been fasting, right? And we've all been there, yeah? Sometimes we do prayer and fasting as a church. Invariably on the last day, someone's like, I just see a picture of a great banquet. Like, yeah, I've been seeing that picture all day, mate. You know, come on, end of fasting tonight. He meets the only thing that is worse than that. He meets the devil himself. Now, the devil is just a, a Greek translation of uh, the, the Hebrew word for Satan. Just means the accuser. He's a, he's a fallen angel. He works uh, against God. He set up his own rival imitation kingdom of rebellion. And he wants to strike a fatal blow to Jesus. Now, Phil Moore, who is a pastor in London, has written a wonderful little devotional book um, on the Gospel of Matthew. If you want um, a bit of help devotionally as you go through um, the series, uh, this is a, a great place. And um, he calls the devil a predictable foe. And what he's meaning by that is that he seems to just have the same old tactics time and time again. And he's kind of given the game away, right? Because some of his biggest moments of temptation happen in the parts of the story that got captured in the Bible, which is the biggest selling book in the world every single year, right? So he kind of made a massive error there. But, but his aim is to destroy Jesus' mission. Jesus' aim is to maintain obedience to the Father. It's showdown. Now, we've already seen one of his tactics. We've referred to it already, that the, the deliberation, that he deliberately comes in vulnerable moments. We've seen in, in, in a passage that the devil comes at the end of the 40 days. That's what verse 3 says, when Jesus is at his, his most weak. And isn't that what we find too? It's late. You're tired. You're alone. Your phone's just there by your bed. It's so easy to end up in sexual sin, isn't it? Or maybe you're lonely, you're bored, you're feeling a bit sad. It can be easy to open up the shopping sites and needlessly spend or get into conversations online that we shouldn't or allow our mind to descend into all sorts of untruths about ourselves. And what happens in those moments is that they're often accompanied with doubts about our identity. Just like here, verse 3, the devil says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, then, and attempts Jesus to, to compromise on what that means. In fact, Jesus has just come from the father affirming him as the son. This is, this is uh, chapter 3, verse 17, just before our passage started. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And he draws on language from Isaiah's prophecy in the Old Testament of a selfless, suffering servant. So it's inappropriate for Jesus to use his own power to satisfy his own needs and turn stones into bread, which is what the devil's tempting him with here. It's, it's not who he is. Just as it's inappropriate for us to settle for anything less than the fullness of life in Jesus by giving into temptation. Because truest satisfaction is ultimately found in God and in the beauty of knowing him who meets our deepest needs. And that's why we put him as the first priority in our lives. Because if anything else is there, there will always be a disconnection. We'll never truly find satisfaction. 
And actually, we find it's when we're away from that joy in Jesus, that, that temptation seems to loom largest, right? It's why so much of overcoming the patterns of sin in our lives comes down to us affirming and celebrating who Jesus has made us to be, that we are his children, that he's pleased with us, that he loves us, that he purposes us, that he makes a way forward for us. I have had plenty of ministry in my own life that has helped me to overcome the temptation to just be seen by my achievements or behavioral patterns of trying to solve everything by myself or beating myself up when I couldn't break cycles of sin in my own life. And yet in these words, this is my beloved son or daughter, in our case, with whom I am well pleased. I have found some of the most pastorally helpful words in the whole Bible. They're true of Jesus, and they're now true of us. Struggling with patterns of sin in your life? If you're in Christ, you are his child. He is pleased with you because the finished work of Jesus covers your every sin and your every mistake. He doesn't keep you at a distance. He says you're beloved. He says he's pleased with you. Your performance does not affect your position, your standing in him. And he's knowing that truth that he's doing what Jesus says in verse four, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's, it's, it's not living by what the, the world can give us or, or what we can provide by ourselves, but living by the promise of the eternal word of God. And the devil keeps coming at Jesus. He tries again, this time with a, a distortion of God and his, his provision. And he, he takes Jesus to the top of the temple in Jerusalem. This is verse five. And he says, you know, Jesus, if you will throw yourself down, God will look after you. You'll be fine. Go on, just do this. You'll be all right. Isn't that what we find? That temptation really is the great distorter. That it encourages us to forget God's love, forget God's care. And it, it paints him as a joy limiter rather than a joy bringer. And actually, often brought in by half-truths. Like here, the, the devil's quoting scripture, quoting truthful scripture, just in a half-true way. Take, take the topic of sex as another example, big, big topic culturally. Like God has a wonderful vision for sex and sexuality that celebrates him by enjoying his gift. And we all have a broken relationship with our sexuality. Men and women face the temptation of, of lust, temptation to, uh, to engage in pornography, masturbation. Like this, this isn't just a guy issue, by the way. Like this is both men and women. We live in a broken world that bombards us with the message that you can have sex with who you want, when you want, and provided the consent, well, it give you fulfillment. And so the devil takes in our life, sex is a good thing and God wants us to enjoy good things and he tempts us to try and ignore God's plan for that to be within a, a safe space of marriage where the couple journey together, where they're already committed, joined to one another forever. He says, hey, you know, this, this porn site, this fantasy, sleeping with this person, it'll bring you satisfaction. And isn't that another tactic of his, to encourage us to self-satisfy our desires immediately? Is what he does here in verse three, is what he does here in verse nine. He gives a distorted view of God and his provision, and Jesus rejects it. He rejects it, the line of saying, why would you ever want to put 
your loving heavenly father to the test. When he's so good, when he's so kind, when he keeps coming to you in your deepest and darkest places, when he makes a way forward for you, when all that he says is good for you. It's like asking Emma Raducanu if she can hit a tennis ball. Just from last night, you know. Like we already know it's true. And so in verse eight, the devil tries to ram it home with one final attempt. And this one is at destruction. He hides the consequences of succumbing to the temptation. And in verse nine, he shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world, but not their sin. And he says, if you'll worship, if you'll submit to me, if you'll give into this attractive thing before you, then you can have it. Aren't they the classic words of temptation? You can have it. You can have, in this case, the kingship that you're due. But he doesn't tell Jesus that it would ruin his whole mission. Just like he didn't tell Israel that their idolatry would break the covenant and end that generation's chances of going into the promised lands. Just like he doesn't tell you about the unbreakable porn habit or the mental health struggles that follow or how difficult it is to remove those images from your minds or about the permanent sense of being torn apart by a sexual fling. He doesn't tell us about the ruin of our body and character that happened by the drug or alcohol misuse. He doesn't tell us about the heart that grows cold to God or the lack of connection with your kids if you overprioritize your career. He never says how addicted and stuck in cycles of comparison we become when we constantly check our social media. He doesn't tell us that the self-made expectations of being who we want and, and what we want are a weight that is too heavy for us to bear. He doesn't let us know that we will never have enough money or possessions or acclaim. Guys, temptation is real and it's powerful, and it's wide-ranging, and it's all around us, and it tries to make good things become ultimate things, and it tries to make us forget who we are, and it's inspired by evil, and it's predatory, and it's attractive, and it's exhausting. It leads us to, to do rash things, and succumbing to it leaves us thirstier than ever, like drinking salty water but it is overcomable and it is resistible because that's what Jesus has won for us. And if you're not a Christian in the room or watching online this morning, what you're about to hear about Jesus Christ can utterly change your life. I'm sure you, like all of us here, will identify with these constant temptations and the way that they never satisfy. Let me show you Jesus. This episode sounds exhausting to us because by ourselves we're powerless, right? This is, this is where Adam and Eve failed in their heading up of humanity. This is where Israel, the people of God, and numbers of their leaders failed in, in their, their representation of him. And yet, look at Jesus, our savior, our warrior king, the holy and anointed one. Look at him resisting every tactic of Satan, standing in our place and all the temptations we face. He won't grasp what is not yet his. He won't assert his own rights. He won't worship or be worshipped falsely 
or turn aside from anything that is not obedience to God. He clings to scripture. He relies on his father. He's led by the Holy Spirit. And he's even happy to go back to this place of wilderness throughout his ministry. Such is his steadfastness and his finding of God and his purposes in the time of trial. This temptation bounces off him. This testing proves him. This trial establishes him. He is Jesus, the Messiah, and he's the savior of the world. And in his victory, we now stand. In his defeat of Satan, here and all the way to the cross, we get life. Jesus succeeded where we failed and continue to fail, and yet now in him, we get to win. Let me give you three things to finish off. We've looked at, on on the slides, keys to temptation. These are keys to triumph. The first one is this, perspective. We've got to have a godly perspective in this. The first thing of which to say is that temptation is normal. It is present. It exists it will happen. It was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus to this place. And in fact, the word of God says that we have a savior in Jesus who has been tempted in every way that we are and yet was without sin. And so what we can know from that as as well as tremendous comfort is that if Jesus was tempted, then the temptation is not the sin. Sometimes we find ourselves feeling bad because we find sinful things attractive. That's temptation. That's the human condition. One day that will be no more in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm sure many of us have been there in the, you're walking down the street, it's a sunny day, someone kind of comes into your eye line approaching you. They're well dressed. Maybe as they approach you, you get a a sense of, smelling really nice, they look really attractive, you've noticed something in that moment. Temptation is there at that point. At that point, sin has not taken place. Where sin happens is if we cling on to it, we start to let our minds run away with that. If we fix our eyes on that person and we start thinking about possibilities, if we refuse to avert our eyes, if we refuse to shoot down with every tactic that we've got, that plane of the enemy that wants to land in the the landing strip of our hearts and minds, that's when the sin takes place. Finding the idea attractive in the first place is not temptation, it's just not real is just fleeting, is salty water before us. But having a biblical perspective is also about knowing that we face these things as sons and daughters of the most high God. We looked at that in three verse 17. And knowing that these trials that we face, these temptations that we encounter, they now come from a place of affirmation. They don't affect our affirmation. They don't threaten it. I'm finding these things so hard. It seems so attractive to me. Friends, remember who you are. You're a blood-bought child of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, like Jesus was here. And the way forward is getting full of him. It's not found in yourself. There might be some practical changes in your life that maybe the Holy Spirit will inspire in you, but the way forward is getting full of him. 
is getting to the worship night tomorrow night and saying, Jesus, there's all these things that seem really attractive to me and I know it's not who I am. Let me get full of you so I can cling to you and receive the empowerment of your spirit. Second thing is this, promise. The promise of the word of God. Just look at Jesus here, quoting and living in scripture. In fact, everything he says is from Deuteronomy chapter six through to Deuteronomy chapter eight. And those three chapters there are are giving an explanation of what God was doing with Israel when they were in the wilderness. And here he's redeeming it. Callum preached in the evening meeting a few weeks ago and he he quoted um, uh, theologian Jen Wilkin who said, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. I think that's so profound. That's why we get into the word of God. My aim in, 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 in reading the Bible is to see Jesus and to get this in me as much as I can. That's where the power of Tuesday night comes in, that Zoom that Josh is running, just to help us to see Jesus in this gospel, to get the word of God in our lives. We can live by the words that come from the mouth of God. And the last thing is this, people. I've had perspective, promise, people. You know, Jesus didn't do these things alone. He did them in reliance on his Father. And how do we know and, and experience God in, in our day in, in prayer and devotion? Yes, sometimes there's decisions that we need to make in the moment that we draw on his strength. But we also know him through his body, the church, one another, us, church family. He has given us one another so that we can know him more and enjoy him more together, so that we can live these things, these temptations that come together. We can share, we can be real. We can counsel one another, we can pray. We can admonish one another where we need to. And it is so helpful, I've found in my life, to have trusted other people in Grace Church who know my weaknesses, who look out for me, who call me out on stuff. That's what church family is. We can all be in that place of just wanting to follow Jesus and so doing that in community. Can't follow Jesus by ourselves. We need one another. And so often the devil tries to isolate us, tries to think that we're the only ones that are experiencing these things, facing these struggles, having these thoughts. May he, try, he tries to get us to think that people will think less of me if I reveal these things that are going on. That is not true. As, especially of sexual sin. Friends, I'm one of the pastors in this church. I know for a fact you're not the only one. We can share together. We can be real together. We can face these powerful things together and draw on the greater power that is Jesus Christ. We can open up, we can be real, we can be aware, we can be active. Let's see Jesus, who learned obedience through suffering these temptations. He knows how we feel. He knows how we can win. Let's resist the devil and he will flee from us. That's the promise of James chapter four. Because as we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Why don't we stand together? And uh, we'll have the band up as well. We're um, almost out of time for the morning, but um, the band will play us out. And um, I, I just want to pray. Let's, um, 
Let's just begin with a, a moment of quiet before the Lord. And maybe just with Jesus in your own heart, just start to think over which, which of these things is he inspiring action in your own life with? Is it the perspective, how you face these temptations that invariably come to your life? Is it about arming yourself with the promises of God? Some practical things you can do where you see the promise of scripture before you or you recall it to your mind. Is it about people? Just being open with someone about what's going on. Trusting that we're family together and we're meant to support one another in, in these trials. And Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would come and um, fill us afresh right now. And we take great delight in knowing that as you do come near to us, Lord, you don't bring condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And if, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian right now, this is the perfect moment to say, Jesus, I surrender to you. I'm putting you first in my life. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you do come bring conviction in these things such as your loving way to shake us out of the salty water things that we do that just leave us thirstier than ever. And we take great delight, Holy Spirit, in knowing that your role, your ministry is to point us to the finished work of Jesus. And so I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would draw us to the cross and to the power of the resurrection and remind us once again that Jesus is seated on high in all authority. And Lord, that in this moment, we would know the loving embrace of your arms, making a way forward for us, empowering us, forgiving us of our sin, and showing us above all that you have defeated the work of the enemy. And one day you will make all things new. One day there will be no more sin, temptation, but will just be consumed by you. And such is the promise of your dawning kingdom. I pray that that captivation with you, Lord Jesus, would dawn in our lives and our hearts right now, that we would remember who we are, that we are blood-bought children of the Most High God, and you are our good, loving, heavenly Father, O Lord Most High. Thank you, Jesus. We're, um, we're out of time for this morning, so um, we're going to close things uh, online. Thank you so much for being here. Um, in the room, we're just going to stay in this place for a couple more moments. If you uh, need to head off, that's absolutely fine. But um, we'd love just to, just to be in this place of worship. This is our empowerment to fight these things. And so we'll just leave you with Chris and the band for a few more moments. And then we're done from the front. Thank you so much.